A significant feature in the defining mythology of Bloomsbury Central Baptist Church is that Martin Luther King Jr. preached there once. It's mentioned proudly in the church history and six decades later is still remembered and recounted by people who were there at the time. Newcomers to the church are swiftly inducted into this story and it's often used as an example of the kind of church that Bloomsbury is, or at least aspires to be. The sermon King delivered at Bloomsbury was called The Three Dimensions of a Complete Life, in which he used the image of the New Jerusalem from the book of Revelation to call people to a life of equal length, breadth and height. By King's exegesis, a long life is one where a person's talents are harnessed and developed to the full. A broad life has an, on, an outgoing concern for the welfare of others. And a life of height intentionally includes God as the pinnacle of a complete life, recognising that personal and humanitarian concerns are too small without this third dimension. This sermon was one which King reused many times over the years, having been the first sermon his wife heard him give. She commented in her biography that it had special meaning for me because it was the first sermon I had ever heard him preach on a Sunday long ago in a little church at Roxbury, Massachusetts. He later delivered the sermon on the 24th of January, 1954, as his Preach with a View sermon to the pastorate at Dexter Avenue Baptist Church in Montgomery, Alabama, a church he was to serve as pastor until 1960, and from which he organised the Montgomery bus boycott of 1955-56. to 56. He then returned to the Three Dimensions sermon for his inaugural sermon at Ebenezer Baptist Church, Atlanta, Georgia in 1960, where he was to minister alongside his father until his assassination in 1968. And he also delivered it for his Evensong sermon at St. Paul's Cathedral in 1964. Comparison of various instances of him delivering the sermon would suggest that he worked from a script, with the more exegetical sections earlier in the sermon repeated almost verbatim each time, followed by an application section where he was more varied, before then returning to a set and presumably scripted conclusion. Coretta Scott King said of his delivery at St Paul's Cathedral that... As always, Martin took the theme and adapted it to his audience, adding new insights, changing it in accordance with the times, and elaborating upon it extemporaneously, justifying his choice of text. King comments in the sermon. For many of us, the book of Revelation... By the way, I'm going to be reading a few quotes from King. It is really hard not to channel him when you're reading him, because he writes as you can hear him speak. For many of us, the book of Revelation is a difficult book, puzzling to decode, and we tend to think of it as something of a great enigma wrapped in a mystery. And I guess if you look at the book of Revelation as a record of actual historical occurrences, it is a difficult book shrouded with impenetrable mysteries. But if you will look beneath the peculiar jargon of vocabulary, of the author and what theologians call the prevailing apocalyptic symbolism, you will see in the book of Revelation many eternal truths which forever challenge us. For King, 
The book of Revelation does not describe a sequence of events to be played out in the course of human history, but rather offers a symbolic world which touches and speaks to each generation with fresh challenge and insight. And this exegetical method is exemplified in the way he uses the image of the New Jerusalem in this sermon. While for many interpreters, the New Jerusalem offers an eschatological image, a vision of an idealized and longed for future. For King, it is an image of the church in the here and now and of the individuals that comprise it. Like the Holy of Holies in the first temple, the New Jerusalem has an equal height to its length, to its width. And it is this three-dimensional aspect of the New Jerusalem that gives King his hook for the sermon. He says, what John is really saying is this. That's a great line, isn't it? What John is really saying is this, that life at its best and life as it should be is three-dimensional. It's complete on all sides. So there are three dimensions of any complete life for which we can certainly give the words of this text, length, breadth, and height. Within these first few sentences, King deftly moves his congregation away from futurist interpretations of Revelation, offering them in, instead a memorable three points on which he can build the rhetoric of conviction and challenge to change which will follow. He then repeatedly emphasizes the threefold mantra of length, breadth, and height throughout the early part of the sermon, using a variety of synonyms, inward, outward, and upward, the individual person, other persons, and the supreme infinite person, all building to his clear challenge. The complete life is the three-dimensional life. The exegetical section of the sermon then addresses each of these in turn, beginning with the length of life, which for King is that dimension of life in which the individual is concerned with developing his inner powers. King's experience as the community organiser behind the Montgomery bus boycott is demonstrated here as he deploys the language of self-interest. He asserts that there is such a thing as rational healthy and moral self-interest. If an individual is not concerned about himself, he cannot really be concerned about others. By the way, I'm not making any attempts to um, make King's language gender neutral. We just have to recognize he spoke in the world that he spoke to. The bedrock of community organizing is the discovery of a person's self-interest. And King shows that he is adept at marshalling this as the motivation for encouraging individuals to become aware and concerned for the welfare of others. His tactic of appealing to self-interest is evident in the first of King's three points in the sermon. His call to the length of life, to a life well-lived with purpose, is compelling and motivating. He spells it out. Once we discover what we are made for, he says, what we are called to do in life, we must set out to do it with all of the strength and all of the power we can muster up. As something 
with cosmic significance. No matter how small it happens to be or no, how insignificant we tend to feel it is. So to carry it to one extreme, if it falls to one's lot to be a street sweeper, one should at that moment seek to sweep streets as Michelangelo carved marble, like Raphael painted pictures. One should seek to sweep streets like Beethoven composed the music or like Shakespeare wrote poetry. One should seek to sweep streets so well that all the hosts of heaven and earth will have pause and say, here lived a great sweet streeper who swept their job well. But King doesn't leave it there. The discovery of a life lived with purpose for the length of days that it has available to it is only his starting point. The discovery of self-interest should initiate the discovery of shared responsibility. And this is what King refers to as the breadth of life. He asserts that a person without breadth to their life will live a selfish life. Love with a utilitarian love and serve only their own self-interest. But a person who learns to be concerned for the interests of others can, as he says, rise above the narrow confines of individualistic concerns to the broader concerns of all humanity. King suggests that the main reason people refrain from taking this active concern for the welfare of others is fear. And he relates this directly to the unwillingness of white people to speak out on the issue of race relations. He says that too many are concerned merely about length of life rather than breadth of life, concerned about their so-called way of life, concerned about perpetuating a preferred economic position, concerned about preserving a sort of political status and power, concerned about preserving a so-called social status. Well, the role of a community organiser is always to wake people from their fear-induced torpor and rouse them to action, paying the cost if necessary. And for King, non-violence is key here. He asserts that those of us who have been on the oppressed end of the old order have as much responsibility to be concerned about breadth as anyone else. This is why I so firmly believe in non-violence, he says. An unswerving commitment to nonviolence is one of King's most well-known doctrines. He was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize in 1964. And here in his sermon, his nonviolence can be seen to arise directly from his concern for the breadth of life. If a person has a genuine concern for the welfare of others, rather than a concern narrowly merely for their own self-interest, they will recognize that their self-interest will never be truly served by doing violence to the other. King is not interested in replacing one oppressor with another, but with freeing people of all creeds and colours from the narratives of violence that enslave them. He says, This is why I disagree so firmly with any philosophy of black supremacy. For I am absolutely convinced that God is not merely interested in the freedom of black men and brown men and yellow men, but God is interested in the freedom of the whole human race, the creation of a society where all men will live together as brothers, and every man will respect the dignity and worth of all human personality. And a doctrine of white supremacy is concerned merely about the length of life, not the breadth of life. So the aim of the Negro never to be defeated or... No, be, so, the aim of the Negro never be to defeat or humiliate the white man, but to win his friendship and understanding. 
It is this widening of the issue of race relations to include a universal understanding of the common good of humanity, rather than simply focusing on the good of the oppressed black population, that allows King to locate the root of the problem away from any one set of persons. He observes, the tension we face in America today, not so much a tension between black men and white men, but it's a tension between justice and injustice, a struggle between the forces of light and the forces of darkness. And if there is a victory, it will be a victory not merely for 17 or 18 million Negroes, it will be a victory for democracy, a victory for justice, a victory for freedom. So the question then for King becomes one of how to motivate not only the oppressed black population, but also the privileged white population to work together peaceably in the cause of justice. And King's antidote to such lethargy is to appeal not just to a person's social conscience, but to their sense of innate humanity before God. It's noteworthy that King's message in this regard seems to have remained consistent, whether preaching to predominantly white congregation in central London or to predominantly black congregations in the United States. His call to black nonviolent resistance to white supremacy is matched by his call for white people to rise from their inactivity and join the struggle for equal rights. And he preaches the same message to both groups. And it's here that King turns to his third dimension, the height to which a person must aspire if they are to live a complete life. When King's life and contribution are summarised, much is made of his commitment to nonviolence and of his philosophy of equal rights for all. However, the religious basis that he articulated for these is often downplayed. For example, the citation on the Nobel Prize website makes no mention of his ordination to Baptist ministry, nor of the theological basis for his convictions. Instead, his nonviolence is ascribed to the inspiration of Gandhi, and his life's work is cast in terms of his contribution to the civil rights struggle. It is as if the third dimension of which he spoke in his sermon, and to which he aspired in his life, is of little significance to his legacy. King certainly did not see it that way. He said, we must not stop with length and breadth. There is another dimension. Now, some people never get beyond the first two. They are brilliant people, and in many instances, they love humanity. They have active social consciences. They stop right there, so they seek to live life without a sky. They live only on the horizontal plane, with no real concern for the vertical. For King, the church could and should be the cradle of the movement he was seeking to create. And when it wasn't, it betrayed his call for people of faith to live complete lives. In a press conference the day after giving his sermon here at Bloomsbury, he spoke about the lack of support he had received from white ministers in southern USA, commenting that one of the great tragedies was the fact that the church often stood behind rather than leading the way it was an echo instead of a voice. Just as the Alabama bus boycott was organized from his church in Montgomery, so other churches and communities of faith could and should, according to King, inspire social transformation in the cause of justice. 
However, King is not blind to the complicity of churches in injustice, damningly observing that the church has too often been that institution that serves to crystallize the patterns of society through often evil patterns. How often, he says in the church, have we had a high blood pressure of creeds and an anemia of deeds? But he remains convinced that if they can recover the third dimension of height in their community life together, churches can become the agents of change rather than the obstacles to it. It is this recovery of confidence in God which for King will be the ultimate source of community transformation. And to this end, he exhorts his listeners. So let us go out with a cultivation of the third dimension, for it can give life new meaning. It can give life new zest. And I can speak of this out of personal experience. Over the last few years, circumstances have made it necessary for me to stand so often amidst the surging of life's restless sea. Moments of frustration, the chilly winds of adversity all around, but there was always something deep down within that could keep me going. A strange feeling that you are not alone in this struggle, that the struggle for the good life is a struggle in which the individual has cosmic companionship. For so many times I have been able with my people to walk and never get weary because I am convinced that there is a great camp meeting in the promised land of God's universe. Maybe St. Augustine was right. We were made for God. We will be restless until we find rest in him. The third dimension from King's sermon, the necessity of active faith for the living of a complete life was something he embodied. It was the source of his activism because it was the source of his desire to live his life to the best of his ability and in the service of others. And he firmly believed that if others were to join him in his struggle for justice, they too would need to ensure that they lived in the love of God, not neglecting the third dimension of the complete life. Here endeth the lesson according to Martin Luther King. <laughs> Thank you. There is a lot more that could be said, um, but I thought I'd just give you a flavour. Uh, the paper, as I have written it, goes on to further examine um, King's relationship with community organising, and I interplay King's um, theology and activism as expressed in the sermon with the writings of Saul Alinsky, who um, sort of was the founder of uh, institution-based community organising in the States in the 1940s and was very influential on Martin Luther King. So that's where the paper goes. Um, I could tell you a bit more about that if you want. We've got uh, a few minutes, but I'd be really happy to take questions and comments. Steve, do you want to come up and help me chair or point people out? I don't mind. <laughs> Sorry, I should have said, uh, it was the 29th of October 1961. It was the first time he preached in the UK. It was a, an intense weekend. So he was speaking um, in America on the Friday morning. He then flew in, on, arrived in the UK on the Friday evening. And then he did, uh, he went and had his picture painted by the uh, really, fairly famous artist Topolsky. Um, which, uh, so that was on the Saturday, 
and then he preached here on the Sunday morning, and then the Sunday afternoon he did uh, some interviews for the BBC, one of which, uh, well, one for BBC and one for Grundy TV. The one for the BBC was one of the face-to-face -face interviews, and they used the Topolsky uh, drawing as the, um, as, as the sort of cover for the programme. That programme still exists, and you can watch it on the iPlayer. So uh, you can actually see him later in the afternoon of the day he preached here, giving the BBC interview. And then on the Monday, he spoke at Methodist Central Hall, and this is what he'd really come over for. And he was speaking at uh, an anti-apartheid rally at Methodist Central Hall. And then he got straight back on a plane and went back to America. So it was a, it was a flying visit to the UK. He appears to have been invited to preach here about a month before. So it looks like he was coming over to the UK and the minister here decided to strike while the iron was hot and issue a, issue a letter of invitation, which was taken up. You started, Simon, by commenting that the fact of the sermon is pretty deeply ingrained in the sub-narrative yeah. of this congregation. Um, given the level of analysis you've done on the sermon and obviously your expert knowledge of the congregation, do, do you think that's more than we had Dr. King here? Yes. I think it's because of what he spoke about and the significance of the issue he brought to life for the community. So uh, one of the earlier stories that people at Bloomsbury tell is of 1851 when the church is only three years old and it was the new shiny Baptist church for London. And it was also the year of the Great Exhibition and there were quite a number of um, visiting Americans coming over and uh, the church took an advert in the Times and said, Bloomsbury welcomes visiting Americans coming over to the Great Exhibition to London, and clearly the inference is, and we welcome your financial donations. But if you are an American who has any residual uh, or, or involvement in the slave trade, you will not be welcome at the Lord's table. So there's uh, a kind of... <laughs> Yeah, um, but the, so, so the, the church has kind of got this long narrative of taking a stand on issues of justice and particularly uh, racial justice. And I think King's visit impacted the church so strongly because it plays right into that method of the church's self-understanding. And that, that still remains with us. I mean, justice issues move on and change. But in, towards the end of the, the, the full paper, I, I reflect on the fact that when um, the uh, video of King, um, the Montgomery, the, from Memphis to Alabama, the, the film came out a few years ago, they did a screening of it here. And then we had community organizers reflecting on King's impact on justice ministry, particularly within communities of faith. And that really resonates with a lot of what drives our vision uh, now as a church. So I think it's, it, it chimes in with who the church understands itself to be. Israel. Uh, thanks, uh, Simon, for unpacking uh, Dr. King's preaching. Uh, I was just thinking of um, what he said about his preaching, whether I was speaking to a black marginalized congregation or a white working class church that is basically also consistent uh, because he ties that the racial justice of building bridges. Yeah. And I'm sort of thinking in context of our Baptist together, Baptist together, and now where we are in terms of sort of racial justice. Um, it's fair to say that we still have some more work to be done. 
I mean, the issue of who are the gatekeepers to voices being heard is a really important one. So the, the only reason King came to this church was because the white minister who was the gatekeeper invited him. And I, I think a, a lot of what goes on in the union today uh, on issues of empowerment and disempowerment around ethnicity and other issues uh, is perpetuated by gatekeeping rather than gate opening and voices are not given platforms to speak. Um, and, you know, that, that, that is... I think King would point at those who are the gatekeepers and say, you know, you are standing there stopping somebody else speaking. You, you need to step aside for a bit and let somebody else have a voice. And that, that was always his message. It was a message about the, the oppressed rising up, but also the privileged stepping aside. And that the two go together in, in the sermon very clearly. Okay, unless anybody else has got another question. We have a minute or two, but or we can just go and get a coffee. <laughs> Great, thank you very much.